0: Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: Welcome to the new Books Network.
2: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today we are pleased to have with us Mr. Philip Snow. Mr. Snow is a widely regarded expert on Chinese international relations. He has written several books, including The Fall of Hong Kong and The Star Raft. He is also the son of the famous novelist and writer Lord Snow, and today we are discussing his newest book, China and Russia, Four Centuries of Conflict and Concord, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Mr. Snow. Thank you very much. Mr. Snow, what is the thesis of your book?
1: My thesis is actually very simple. China and Russia today constitute a formidable combination, and alliance in all the names. Its near alliance product of a long succession of ups and downs going back to the times of the late Ming Dynasty in the 17th century, it's unlikely to last forever, but nor is it likely to disintegrate any time soon. Whichever direction it takes will have
2: major repercussions for the rest of the world. When and why did you first become interested in sino russian relations? My interest has its
1: roots in some rather unusual boyhood experiences. My parents were novelists, widely read in both the United States, and the Soviet Union, they believed very sincerely at the height of the Cold War that they could play a useful role, building bridges between the literary communities in both countries, at least attempting to persuade each side that not everyone on the other side had formed the tale. As part of this endeavor, they traveled to Russia a number of times in the 1960s and early 1970s as guests of the Soviet lighted Union, meeting a wide range of literary figures. And diehard dullness, liberal, and eventual discipline. And I traveled with them, obtaining a glimpse of Soviet society at this highly rarefied level, and visiting a number of far-flung regions, including Siberia, the Soviet Far East, and the Central Asian Stars. Back at school, I built on these activities by embarking on a Russian language course. In the meantime, however, my attention has also been captured by the other great pariah country, the People's Republic of China which was just then emerging from the isolation of the Cultural Revolution, and beginning to engage once again with the outside world. At Oxford, I took a degree in Chinese, which I was then able to turn to some practical use by working successively in a trade promotion capacity for the Sino-British Trade Council and the First National Bank of Chicago. This activity enabled me to get an equally striking glimpse of China in the early post-Mao years. As the country shifted under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping, from political to a dynamic new policy and economic experiment. Back in 1974, as part of my Chinese degree course, I'd spent several months at a language center attached to Nanyang University in Singapore to upgrade my spoken Mandarin, where I ran unexpectedly into a team of Soviet students who were there with the same objective. Unable to go to Beijing at a time when china and Soviet relations were icy, or to Taiwan in the absence of diplomatic ties, barred to Hong Kong by the British anxiety to avoid upsetting the Chinese mainland, they headed for the Singapore as the only Chinese keeping territory open to them. And this surprising encounter sparked seemingly really an interest in the interaction between Russia and China, which I've
2: retained ever since. Uh, what were the relations between Tsarist to Russia and Ming China? Pretty minimal. From the mid-16th century,
1: Russia was gradually stirred to an interest in China by the agitation of particularly English traders who sought to call through Russian land on the way to the Chinese Empire, an interest which grew as the Russians began to expand eastwards into Siberia. In 1618, an exploratory party led by an official named Ivan Pipkin out from the new Siberian settlement of Tomsk and made their way through Mongolian territory to the main dynasty capital of Beijing. The party immediately ran into protocol difficulties, informed by the main court that they couldn't be received by the Emperor Wanli because they hadn't brought him any gifts. The whole attitude of the court turned out to be deeply introverted. A letter issue to the party on behalf of the Emperor was couched in amiable terms and exhibited no desire to reciprocate Russian interests, merely inviting the Muscovite ruler to bring the best you have, and I, in return, will make you a present of good and stuff, slotting the Russians, in other words, into the long-established imperial tribute system. The letter was delivered to Moscow, but no one could be found to translate translations, and it languished untranslated in the Russian archives for the next 50 years. Perhaps it's no accident that Titaitseya Garamaka a Chinese document, is the Russian expression, the double Dutch.
2: And how, if at all, did relations change with the rise of the Manchu?
1: With the Manchu conquest of China and the establishment of the Qing Dynasty in 1644, the Chinese Empire fell into the hands of a non-Chinese ruling caste. And the result was that Beijing started looking at foreigners without a different eye. Russian embassies began to arrive in the Chinese capital-seeking trade, the 1650s onwards, continued to meet with obstruction over protocol issues. But in 1770s, we find signs of what one Western historian has labeled barbarian fascism. In 1676, for example, the negotiations with one Russian embassy were breaking down over the embassy that insisted that the Tsar's letter had to be received by the Qing Emperor and no one else. The Emperor Kangxi, or auditing diplomats, could search through the old Chinese records to see if there was any equivalent for the monarch receiving a foreign embassy's credentials in person. And clearly, most did to do so. A compromise was eventually reached, under which the ambassador placed the Tsar's letter gifts, what special people, to be picked up by a senior councillor on the Emperor's behalf. As time went on, Cai even showed himself willing to make a significant break with the traditional Chinese posture of superiority. In terms of certain strategic aim. in the mid 1580s his forces defeated and continued Cossack separate settlers who had been trying to establish themselves in the Amur Valley on China's northeastern fringe. But instead of simply wiping out the defeated Cossacks, he decided to draw Moscow into diplomatic talks, partly to avoid incessant border conflicts. I thought it could secure, at least for a key in a major confrontation which was brewing between the Chinese Empire and an aggressive Mongol power which was taking shape to China's to protect. The result was the conclusion in 1689 of the city of Yevchinsk. The public city, as by the state, on a negotiated by a Chinese government of the current states on approximately equal territory, took for held on the Amur frontier rather than in Beijing. The senior team representatives were well, all Manchus, not Chinese. The text of the treaty is drawn up to help you dynasty receive Jesuit advisors in Manchu, Russian, and Latin, but not in Chinese. The cossacks were obliged to explore from the Amur Valley. But in return, Russian merchants were given the permission they be to cross the border to trade in the Chinese capital. Would it be
2: true to say that until the second quarter of the 19th century, that the relations between the two empires were of a amicable sort, with the Manchu in a slightly superior position. Oh, dear, yes,
1: there was a period of seven years in the mid 18th century when the Russian advanced to the east and the Manchu advanced to the west, like resulting in a collision between the two powers in Central Asia and along the Siberian frontier with Mongolia, now Manchu controlled. In the late 18th century. Regular trade, which had been instituted at the Russo-Mongolian border post of Kharkhah, was suspended a number of times as the Qing court reacted to duty debit without attempt by the Russian authorities and to various misdemeanors committed by individual Russians. Nonetheless, it's worth noting that for over 150 years following the city of 18th, no armed conflict took place between the two empires, with each apparently fearful of the nation's power of the other. Military terms, the Russians were actually catching up fast with their team neighbors. By 1757, the Russian armies had field guns, while in 1840, team forces were still largely reliant on bladed weaponry and bows and arrows. But as late as 1850, the veteran Foreign Minister, Count Karl Roth Niffelwold, still continued warning of extreme danger after the retirement. Starting in 1715, the Tsarist government were even able to maintain the Russian ecclesiastical mission in Beijing, which slowly succeeded in winning the tolerance and respect of to the Tao authorities. Until 1825, East Russian Orthodox priests actually found themselves the only Europeans to in the Chinese capital, where they impressed the Qing court with their medical skills and their portrait painting, while quietly pursuing informal diplomatic and intelligent functions.
2: Relations changed so drastically after the 1840s. The relationship changed rapidly in
1: the mid 19th century as the Russians reacted to the breakthrough into China made by the West, following the Russian defeat of the Qing in the First Opium War, with 1839 to 42, and the subsequent opening up of the Chinese treaty ports. Large amounts of high-quality, low-cost British and other Western goods began pouring into China. By the mid-1840s, the Russian priests in Beijing were reporting to St. Petersburg how British copy and a Russian competition out of the market, and he great grave fears were entertained for the future of the Siakhtar trade. But at the same time, it has become apparent that the Qing were no longer the formidable military opponents that old-timers like Nestle were as a and that legions of Chinese priests scattered at the laying of a northern horse the defeat which Russia has sustained at the hands of Britain and France in the Crimean War of 1854 to 56 led there's a number of Tsarist policymakers to hanker after the new acquisitions in the East, who are first to humiliation in, in Europe. And the first onslaught on China, which was launched by Britain and France in the Second European War of the late 1850s, is the government cover to pursue their own expansionist agenda.
2: How did the Manchu react to the initial Russian encroachments?
1: On the face of it, you might expect the Qing government to have been devastated by the Russian The territory sometimes referred to as Outer Manchuria that was extracted by Doris Russia from the Qing under the treaties of 1858 to 1860 is vastly larger than any territorial acquisitions made at this period by the British and French. It was, in fact, well, the larger the in Germany put together. A further 500,000 square kilometers were detached by the Russians in the millions in Central Asia and formed part of present day Kazakhstan. The Tsarist diplomats were able to draw on their country's nearly 200 year experience of dealing with China to combine their land grab with what I'd call an avuncular policy, the approach of a benevolent uncle, offering to mediate for the Qing with the two Western powers and even drawing up to their benefit a seriously modern-sounding package of military aid, putting them to succeed the colossal Taiping rebellion that was raging in their southern properties. The Qing government weren't taken in by these grand already by 1857. It was clear that the Russians were hoping to negotiate the position of neutrality in order to obtain ancestry. Prince Gong, who headed the Manchu team in the negotiation of eighteen fifty expressed his opinion that all of the barbarians have the nature of bleed beasts. The British are the most un- little, but the Russians are the most cunning. Yet the two to a certain extent won over by the Russian avuncular statement. In the first days after nearly 200 years, they come to view with the Russians with a familiar part of the scenery. The devil they knew, by comparison with the British and French, he brought the landscape like extraterrestrial, In addition. The territorial gains, against as ruler were, were all being made of the remote and sparsely populated cities of their empire, whereas the Western powers were in the state of the empire's heart, setting out to secure the diplomatic and commercial presence in Beijing and the rest of the major cities in the Chinese interior. In November 1860, the ended up by accepting the Russian offer to provide arms and military training at the old saving entrepreneur.
2: Of Why did Russia's China policy fail to deliver in the lead-up to the Russo-Japanese War?
1: Because the Russians had changed. Right up to the mid-1890s, the Tsarist government had maintained their avuncular posture, offering themselves as champions of the Qing Dynasty against the worsening depredations of the other great powers. In 1894 to 95, for example, when Han attacked China. And occupied in the outdoor peninsula in southern Manchuria, the Zars' a triple intervention by Russia, France and Germany, who successfully advised Japan to withdraw from the territory at the sea. And in 1896, the Zars' prime minister sent Sergei Vita, is the secret treaty of the alliance with the King, under which Russia would help the King forces in the event of any further aggression regression by the Japanese. As part of the deal, Russia once seen permission to build the K Railway, allowing line with the Trans-Siberian, memory, a short start to give the Holy trans Siberian network a shortcut through Manchuria towards the Gulf. And would incidentally also give Russia a vertical monopoly of the local Manchurian economy, but all this time pressure was mounting in various government circles among officials who were discontented with the balanced approach and thought their country to hurry to catch up with the upper great powers in a scramble for 20th century in years of influence. The watchword was said to be, not as yet, we must take. In the winter of 1897-98. the old Abuja policy was finally given up. A desired naval squadron, without any attempt to consult the Beijing authorities, sailed to the Laodong Peninsula and occupied the key naval base of Port Arthur and the port of Dalian thereby teasing to fight to the same segment in Northeast China they liberated from the Japanese just two years before. The result was that the Chinese, of valid Russia now became openly hostile. In the thermodynamics of 1900, CW was set on to attack the unfinished Chinese BC Railway in support of the anti-foreign Boxer rebellion. The Russians responded by sending a hundred thousand-strong army to occupy the whole of Manchuria, But their ensuing rule was beguiled by a stubborn Chinese guerrilla resistance, which lasted until at least the beginning of 1933. And while the Qing court stayed officially neutral when the Japanese launched their all-out attack on Rusty Tower in Manchuria in 1945, Chinese society seized largely to have sympathized with Japan and Chinese villagers in the war zone and had given shelter and information to the Japanese military.
2: How did Tsarist Russia react to the fall of the Manchu in
1: 1911? Basically, as a new opportunity, in spite of their necessary defeat in Manchuria, the Tsarist government still had it abandoned their hopes of expanding their influence in the Russian chinese borderlands. Tsarist interest was now brief focused on Mongolia, where the local population had grown increasingly restive of both Manchu taxes and the exploitative demands of Chinese money lenders and Russian appetites had been whetted by the region's huge resources of gold and iron. After the Qing actually fell, the Outer Mongolian princes struck out the full independence from China, arguing that while there might have been a logical place for them in the multicultural Manchu Empire, they could scarcely be, except, be except expected to accept transformation into a mere province of an ethnic Chinese republic. And the people who publicly would have taken power in Beijing weren't yet in any position to crack down on them. Four years of Tsarist culminated in June 1915 in the conclusion of a Chinese-Russian-Mongolian treaty through which Alta mongolia would become an autonomous region of the nominal Chinese sovereignty. For all practical purposes, a large chunk of the former Manchu dominions had been bitten away.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: All right, I'll do. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month
2: in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
2: How do the Chinese react to the fall of Tsarist Russia and the rise of the Bolsheviks?
1: In a different manner in different places. In North China, the various warlord regimes which are taking shape, seized the chance to claw back control of those parts of the borderlands which had been brought under Tsar's overlordship in the past few decades. So, for example, the celebrated Manchurian warlord, Jiang zuo took over the Harbin, the Russian boomtown which had grown up around the headquarters of the Chinese Eastern Railway, leading Harper's Magazine to observe with dismay because Harbin had become the only white city in the world ruled by yellows. While a second Nestor warlord marched into outer Mongolia, where he proclaimed the annulment of the June nineteen fifteen treaty of reimposed Chinese rule. In Shanghai in the South, however, where more radical forces were gathered, Chinese attention was focused on the emergence of a new and apparently sympathetic Russia in the form of the Bolshevik. from nationalist party would established details in Guangzhou, under the leadership of Sun Yat-sen, perceived Soviet Russia as a power which might support their efforts to reunify China and rid it of the Western-backed warlords, while the tiny Chinese Communist Party, which would be prodded by the Bolsheviks into alliance with the nationalists, were enthralled by what they saw as the emergence in Russia and a new civilization based upon social justice. As the alliance developed, however, both the two Chinese parties began to exhibit a growing unease. With their Soviet patrons. In such emergency, Ladino military and army officers who made up the bulk of the nationalist movement who were deeply suspicious of Soviet communism. While the Chinese communists were resentful of having been pitched into an alliance with the nationalists in the first place, now, both nationalists and communists detected behind the warm embrace of the Bolshevik Kremlin a continued pursuit of the Tsarist expansionist goals, generous promises made to the Chinese people. ...by the new Bolshevik leaders in 1919 regarding the ownership of the Chinese Eastern Railway and other missions ...were mysteriously retracted the following year. And in June 1921, the Red Army marched in and installed the pro-Soviet government in outer Mongolia... ...in effect reinstating the previous arrangement, under which Mongolia remained nominally part of China... ...but became became in reality a Russian-guided autonomous state. In December 1923 four disgruntled Chinese communist students wrote a letter addressed to a Soviet emissary in Beijing denouncing the his secret plans for both the Chinese Eastern Railway and Mongolia and even accusing him of intrigue for the northern warlords, the Chinese dogs he feed,
2: making use of their rabid barking. Why was Stalin so important a factor in 20th century Chinese history? Because he was able to use his role as the
1: Soviet strongman manipulate the emerging political forces in China for a period of almost 30 years. In the mid-1920s, he overthrew the creation of the Nationalist-Communist United Front, sending Soviet advisors to micromanage both parties and to create the National Revolutionary Army, which eventually overthrew the warlord regimes in North China in 1926-28. This experiment ended in disaster in 1927, when Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists Rounded on both the Chinese communists and their Soviet backing. But fastly turning its back on the new Chinese nationalist government, Stalin work to rebuild ties with them and supported them consistently for the next two decades. His objective from this point on was explicitly to ensure its repeated security of the Soviet Union, which was increasingly threatened by Japan on its eastern flank. And he regarded the nationalists as the only political force in China strong enough to serve Moscow. As an alliance, as mali, against the Japanese menace. When the Japanese embarked on their all-out invasion of China in 1937-38, Stalin's massive transfusion to gangs' regime of war credits, armaments, pilots, and military advisors, his still played a decisive part in averting a, a nationalist collapse in the first two years of the Sino-Japanese conflict, diverting Japanese attention in the Soviet Far East in Siberia, and alleging the Kremlin as it were, to fight Japan to the last Chinese. In 1943, the US United States military presidency, China, took the place of Japan as the focus of Stalin's strategic anxiety. But once again, he sought to enlist the cooperation of Chinese nationalist government, offering help with the economic development between Xinjiang and Manchuria, while conditioning that not a single American soldier remained on Chinese sorrow. The corollary was that the Chinese Communist Party were left consistently on the back burner. From the mid-1930s onwards, they were under steady Soviet pressure to form a second united front with their nationalist enemies. And in December 1936, following the kidnapping of John Haiché by disgruntled military chiefs in Xi'an, Stalin actually intervened to prevent the Chinese communists taking delivery of for trial and execution. In 1945, the Soviet media forced Mao Zedong to enter into peace talks with Zhang and Chongqing. But it was only in 1946 suddenly, that Stalin at last began to throw his weight behind the Communists, equipping them with the enormous supplies of heavy weaponry, which made it possible for them to overwhelm the nationalists in the final years of the Chinese Civil War. After the establishment of the People's Republic of China in 1949, Stalin again used before the Soviet Union's dominant role as the Ministry of Economic Mainstay of the new CCPW to pressurize Mao and his colleagues, because the People's Liberation Army across the border into Korea, the Westy Kim il regime, from collapsing in the face of the United States' the United Nations defenses, once again keeping his armies well after the conflict and enabling the Soviet Union to fight the United States
2: to the last Chinese. How did Moscow react to the rise of Mao? One of the earliest Soviet reports on Mao
1: Zedong depicted him as a troublemaker. In September 1927, declining to take part in a foolhardy urban insurrection, which the Communist International, the Comintern, had decreed to take place in Changsha, he led a small contingent of Hunanese troops into the Jingdao Mountains on the border between Hunan and Gatse provinces, where he aimed to establish a defensible CCP base. The Comintern agent so in Changsha, a certain Vladimir Kuchul, denounced him for exceptionally shameful behavior and cowardice and a tentacle made to track him down and bring him back to Moscow as he tried for military opportunity. But Mao, in the down Mountains, was beyond Moscow's reach. From November 1931, when Mao was elevated to the police as chairman, of the first Chinese lobbyist of the public set up in Jiangxi, he came under constant fire he was a young Chinese Stalinist who had been sent from Moscow to head the underground CCP leadership in Shanghai. The commissary, however, stepped in, Preventing being expelled from the party for insubordination. The consensus in Moscow was that now was indeed insubordinate, but he was also a winner. A party driven home in 1935-36 when he led the CCP to a successful completion at the Long March. In November 1937, the aspiring CCP leader who'd been living in exile in Moscow, Wang Lin, was dispatched by Stalin, the new CCP-based Yan'an to impress the Chinese party bosses it is the of the need for a second Nationalist Communist United Front against Japan. But even then, he is said to be reminded by the common firm that he should behave modestly and that the leaders of the CCP, Mao Zedong, and not Yi, the underlying Soviet attitude to the CCP Germany, remained, however, one of suspicious. Soviet observers deployed at Yan'an in the early to mid-1940s were well aware of the anti-Soviet nature of the Fermanent rectification Campaign. What kind of person is this Mao Zedong? Stalin said to him, grumbled to his crated. I don't know anything about him. He'd never be the Soviet Union. And in January 1949, on the eve of the CCP's victory in the Civil War, the Soviet Politburo member, Anastasia Mikhayaan, was sent to China to give his colleague a first close-up view of the CCP's chief. Mikhayaan returned home, uninterested by Mao's efforts to present himself that Stalin's face was a trifle. This was not upon what the don't did in the analogy, nor to what he thinks about himself. In December 1949, when Mao Zedong became to Moscow, in his capacity as leader, of as leader, the new Bush Republic of China, his key was said to have been received by the NKVD and analysed the insights they might supposedly give into his character And Stalin on several occasions. So a distinct preference that the chairman's more pliable deputy. It shall
2: what explains the Sino-Soviet split?
1: At the most basic level, the arose from the Chinese desire to be rid of the Soviet treatment. As early as 1953, following Stalin's death, some of the CCP leaders are said to have declared to a Soviet interpreter, "Now that Stalin is dead, the leader of the international revolution in Rupert is Mao Zedong, and the CCP's assertion of independence progressed in the following years past such milestones." as Mao's critical response to Nikita Khrushchev's denunciation of Stalin in the secret speech of February 1956, the CCP's to have outstripped the Soviet Union in the quest of socialist modernity through the Great Leap Board and the People's Commune, and the doctrinal pandemic which raged between nineteen fifty 1960 and 1954 over such issues as the feasibility of the parliamentary socialism and the Soviet tilt towards the bourgeois Indian government in the final Indian border war. Many years later, Deng Xiaoping, who served as the CCP's leading spokesman in the course of these ideological wrangles, conceded that they'd been largely hot air, and the Chinese themselves now believe that their positions would always be the right one. The main force of the Soviets, he declared, had lain not in their doctrine, but in their failure to treat the Chinese as
2: equals. How did Moscow react to Mao's Cultural Revolution?
1: With acute fear. The Soviet embassy in Beijing and its staff and a couple of Soviet workingmen were among the main targets of Red Guard xenophobia. And the Maoist successes were widely seen as a prelude to a massive invasion of Russia itself. The Mongol occupation of the 13th to 15th centuries had left deep scars on the Russian psyche. And not everyone bothered to make the ethnic distinction between Mongols and Chinese. At the top of the Soviet hierarchy, Leonid Brezhnev had no doubt that Mao was a mania. And his apprehensions were widely shared by intellectuals with ordinary citizens to catch from or even oppose to the Soviet regime. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for example, warned that war with China is bound to cost us 60 million people at the very least, or while our finest imperialist people are bound to perish. One piece of black humor predicted 21st century radio bulletins, all quiet on the Sino-Finnish border.
2: What caused the outbreak of hostilities in 1969 between the two powers? Starting in 1957, the CCP gradually
1: worked into their call with Moscow, a number of territorial grievances relating to their shared borderline. And from 1960, they were expressing their discontent in the form of political demonstrations. Groups of fishermen in Manchuria, or shepherding Xinjiang, would cross the existing frontiers and refuse to be And Chinese border guards would deliver themselves of verbal protests and engage in bouts of pushing and shoving with their Soviet counterparts. As the cultural revolution boiled over, these more or less ritual performances began to take on an uglier and less predictable shape. Tensions mounted, in particular, over disputed islets in the Amur River, known for the Russians of Pamansky and the Chinese as Jindao, where, in the last days of 1968, Soviet and Chinese border guards. A bit of with sticks and clubs. Mao apparently made up his mind that this was the place to stage a significant onslaught. And on March 2, 1969, a specially trained unit of 300 People's Liberation Army soldiers who'd been smuggled onto the island the previous night could fire on the Soviet border guards at Point Guy Range. The Soviet commander was killed along with 30 of his men, leading the Kremlin to retaliate two weeks later with a massive counterattack by several thousand feet equipped with tanks, artillery, aircraft, and missiles, now gambit, gambit may, in fact, have been launched primarily for Chinese domestic purposes. By 1969, the Chairman was confirmed to rein in the Red Guards, whose excessive to be making China ungovernable, and to restore order to with the help of the PLA. A short, successful attack on an isolated Soviet border post would boost the PLA's prestige, divert public attention, Away from the internal turmoil it enable Mao to declare the Cultural Revolution over at the forthcoming Ninth Congress of the CCP. Now, apparently, having bargained for the scale of the Soviet retaliation, which left him sufficiently shaken to issue an order, We should stop here, do not fight anymore. By 8 he seemed to have recovered his nerve. And the pattern of Chinese provocations and Soviet counterstrikes persisted through the summer on both the Manchuria and Xinjiang frontiers. As the two powers seemed to peep perilously on the verge of the nuclear war.
2: How did Moscow react to the initial changes in Chinese economic policies in the late 1970s, and early 1980s?
1: During the first few years after Mao died, Soviet ties with China appeared to have been still sort of too limited to permit any rapid appreciation of the spectacular shift towards the market economy that had begun to take place under the leadership of Deng Xiaoping the PRC seemed most likely to shift from Stalinist economics to some more liberal version of the Soviet system. And the movement had even been launched throughout China to study the work of Nikolai Bukharin, the former captain of the new economic policy pursued by the Soviet government from 1921 to 1928. In the early 1980s, as the two powers slowly began to move towards normalizing their political relations, the Soviet economy seemed to be the PRC would slip back into its old role as the economic disciple of the Soviet peace glover. Ivan Archipov, he served as the chief economic advisors of the Chinese government for most of the 1950s, with the PRC in December 1984 on an ice breaking visit, with a lot to help with the renovation of 17 industrial plants which Soviet engineers had constructed 30 years before. Archipov, however, was not unobservant. Taken to visit the special economic zone which the DCP had set up in Shenzhen, to boost exports and attract foreign investment in an area which had been a muddy village a few years earlier. He could not, his host noted, help marveling at what the Chinese had accomplished, and also revealed his disagreement. He his dissatisfaction with the current situation in the Soviet Union. Two years later, in 1986, the new Soviet ambassador to Beijing, Ali Koyanovsky, was instructed to follow Chinese economic reforms with attention, and in particular those aspects which might be of interest. The USSR. Like on arriving at his post, try not to observed that the Chinese have made a full-blooded start on reforms, one of the last people they tinkering, one might say, I converted to a new faith. Two so years after that, Chinese was built up in Moscow for a Soviet Shenzhen to be founded in the Soviet Far East, and the post of Makhotka is designated a free economic gain. It's the first step in China's transformation, either junior to the senior partner in the China-Russian relationship.
2: What did Deng Xiaoping think of Mikhail Gorbachev?
1: He thought he was an idiot. From Deng's point of view, it was sheer stupidity for a communist leader to embark on economic reform without at the same time taking steps in maintaining the party's political grip. Deng's judgment seemed fully borne out when Gorbachev's blastiness experiment ended in the collapse of the Soviet Union, while his own ruthless crushing of the Tiananmen protests secured the rule of the CCP for another generation. But Gorbachev always maintained Within Soviet circumstances, it would have been impossible to liberalize the economy, while still leaving the political lid
2: on. How good or bad were Sino-Russia relations in the Yeltsin period? Following the collapse of the Soviet Union at the end of
1: 1991, the initial relations between the post-Soviet government and Boris Yeltsin and the CCP in Beijing were predictably wary. One of Yeltsin's chief lieutenants, Yegor Gaidar, who was heading the drive to westernize the Russian economy, dismissed China as a dangerous and useless neighbor, while Yeltsin was in Beijing as an anti-communist and a traitor. Within no more of the you know the three parts were drawing closer together again. In December 6, 1992, Yeltsin paid a visit to the Chinese capital, where he signed a joint declaration with the CCP leadership. affirming and China and Russia were friendly countries. The two governments started out to but they got far increasingly better without their shared ideology. On a personal level, the boisterous Yeltsin, is not done Duns while well, the extrovert successor Jiang in. And from 1996, the two leaders exchanged visits annually, while the friendly relationship was upgraded to a constructive and later to a strategic partnership. Ties were cemented in part by a huge Chinese appetite for Russian arms, which in turn said to have be been crucial for Russia's short term survival as an industrial power in the post-Soviet chaos. In this 1990s the Beijing government were beginning to look to Russia to help meet their exponentially growing demand for oil and gas. While Chinese traders crossed into the Russian Far East to supply feebly to the local population who had been left destitute by the breakdown of their transportation links through the European Russia. But most of all, the two powers were drawn together by the perceived antagonism of the West. The Russian leadership were disillusioned by the Western failure to support them with large-scale economic aid and were angered and alarmed by the expansion of NATO into the former Warsaw Pact states, which implicitly cast them in the role of the enemy. On the Chinese side, stress keeps its appealed, but beginning to argue that the main threat to their country came no longer from Russia, but from the United States. US heavy Fleet intervenes to deter a PRC little Nephile, campaign designed to intimidate the Taiwan Authority. The U.S. and Japan signed a joint declaration on security. In April 1997, China and Russia expressed for the first time their shared opposition to United States' dominance of the post-Cold War scene. Through a declaration on the trend to a multipolar war, and to a declaration on the trend to a multipolar world in the establishment of a new international order. And two years later, both powers were enraged simultaneously by NATO's bombing of Serbia and over the Kosovo issue. Russia, because it saw itself as the traditional protector of the Serbs, and China, because three of its journalists have been killed in the unintentional NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in Belgrade. By the time Yeltsin retired at the end of 1999, the foundations were already laid for the final Russian year and of the next quarter century.
2: Why have the two powers become so closely aligned in the Putin period, or era?
1: Because both of them have felt threatened by the West, but in very similar ways. China and Russia aren't revolutionary states in the sense that the Soviet Union are in the 1950s. On the contrary, they're fundamentally traditional and conservative Europeans, which take stand in effect, principles championed by the European powers in the 1648 Treaty of Westphalia, unfettered national sovereignty and the right in national governments to do whatever they wish in their own backyards without interference from in the outside world. This brings them into collision with the increasingly widespread Western view that national government's answerable was global tribunal. who was treating to their population. It follows that each regime has dense support for the other when the other is detracted by Western or Western-backed forces. China, for example, has followed a policy of sympathetic neutrality towards Putin's war in Ukraine, echoing the Kremlin's line that their campaign in the last two years hasn't been a war. But a special military operation and blaming the conflict as Russia does on the aggressive expansion of NATO in Eastern Europe, while the Russians had consistently brought their understanding of China's attempts to suppress the West Sea supported separatist elements in Taiwan, Xinjiang, and Tibet. Both the Chinese and Russian regimes were felt threatened additionally by deceiving the Bolasky classes of body working values, including not only the concepts of democracy and human rights but also the shift to acceptance of LGBT. And on top of all this, cities in China, including Russia, they seem more and more like a natural fit. The squabbles over the border, which have been deviled by new Russia in Ukraine from the 1960s onwards, were finally declared to be over in 2004, the session by Russia of a last handful of disputed island territory is more the Amor River the Valley. The development models pursued by the two parts have increasingly converged course, Putin has gradually steered Russia closer into the Chinese model of state-sponsored capitalism coupled with stringent political control. The dramatic emergence of China as an economic powerhouse has been balanced by the authority of Russia's steel command on account of its steep nuclear arsenal. And Russia's need for financial support in the face of mounting Western sanctions has filled with Chinese appetite for Russian oil and gas supplies, which can be delivered to Chinese markets by the safe overland route to Siberia,
2: rather than having to be transported by the theory from the ever-volatile Middle East. How do you envision the future of Sino-Russian relations?
1: When Russian commentators began, rather slowly, to take note of the increasingly close ties between post-Soviet Russia and China, their general view seemed to be that their retrospective wouldn't last, that it could all end in tears like the Sino-Soviet honeymoon of the 1950s. Well, that so hasn't happened. And indeed, this current sunny period of official relations has now lasted for 30 years, three times as long as the doomed 1950s honeymoon. Vigorous efforts have been made by both sides to ensure the relations are kept sunny and that the breakdown of the 1950s and 1960s is never repeated. It's instructed to consider a number of issues made by prominent Chinese Iraqis over the years. Already in 2011, a professor at the National Defense University in Beijing, told the Western visitor, as long as American pressure remains, the Sino Russian partnership will endure. In an article published in Foreign Affairs in December 2015, Madame Fu Ying, a former Chinese deputy foreign minister, insisted that the sino Russian entente was by no means a marriage of convenience, but was complex, sturdy, and deeply rooted. One of the leading Russian scholars of the relationship, Professor Alexander Lukin, observed in 2018 that the basis of the new alliance Was now so strong that any differences could be effectively resolved through the existing mechanism of consultations. That in December 2020, in a telephone call to his best friend Vladimir Putin, President Xi Jinping affirmed that the ties between China and Russia could not now be broken by any third party and could weather all kinds of international turmoil. Contrary to some expectations, the partnership doesn't seem to have been disrupted by the Ukraine war. are some circles in in Beijing it expressed sharp opposition to the initial invasion, and the CCP have never gone so far as to endorse Russian annexation of the Ukraine. Instead, the Chinese government appears to be steering a steady course of extending sympathy to the Kremlin, along with a certain amount of non-measal military aid, while at the same time endeavoring to secure some improvement in their false relations with the United States. It's possible, nonetheless, to detect some seeds of future conflict which could potentially germinate over time. One source of friction might well be the enormous shift in economic money between the two powers. By 2021, Chinese GDP is reckoned by analysts to be eight or ten times that of the Russian Federation. And Russia's own GDP is said to be outstripped by that in Guangdong province alone. China said to account for 15% of Russian foreign trade, Russia only 1% of China. China's interest in Russia. It was overwhelmingly in Russian energy rather than Russian industrial products. During the early years of the 18th century, even China's long-standing demand for Russian weaponry was sharply declining as the PRC started to develop a vast military technology of its own. And since the start of the Ukraine war, the Kremlin said to have sought a considerable range of Chinese military hardware, inserted to air missiles the military and military reconnaissance drones. While some Russians appeared to take China's overtaking them philosophically, other commentators wondered how long their country would tolerate being reduced to a mere resource appendage of its great eastern neighbor. China's growing supremacy in the economic sphere could also have political implications. As Chinese investment enabled the CCP government to secure a tightening a grip on the former russian busting dominated borderland, by 2010 the Chinese were said to have gained effective control of Altai Mongolia's coal mining industry. By 2017, the PRC said to account to 65.8% of Mongolian foreign trade. After the fall of the Soviet Union, Tsai-Ril-Russia seemed to have worked out quite a comfortable modest in the former Soviet rule republics in Central Asia, with the Russians retaining their influence in political and military methods, while the Chinese concentrated on expanding their business presence in the stands. By 2016, however, Beijing was starting to overstep these fasted limits according to military advisors in one country, Tajikistan, gone, without bothering to seek the Premier's approval. And in May this year, with Russia distracted by the Ukraine conflict, he gave people the opportunity to carry a regional summit of the central Asian leaders. with a particular focus of security, it might well not be easy for a weaker Russia to adjust the to long-term to your position to be the apartment. Another question... Percent- On that, and- please go ahead. <laughs> Another potential stumbling block is a demographic one. The all too obvious contrast displayed in the Russian Far East, where a Russian population of around 6 million people faced some 110 million Chinese in the PRC's three Manchurian provinces. Already in the late 19th century, large difficult new settlers in the newly acquired Russian territory had been haunted by a nightmare vision of being swamped by Chinese migrants in the south, and the terror scene reemerged after Chinese traders and neighbors started to cross the border area get in large numbers at the end of the Soviet period. In one apocalyptic scenario, it's been suggested that in a few decades' now, climate change may have turned much of North China into a desert, forcing the inhabitants to push across the border into the Russian far east of Siberia and Siberia in search for speed and water. And while the hypothesis is being far-fetched at the moment, but it's the moment, at least one Chinese attempt has already been reported to drain freshwater water from Lake Baikal. Population pressure might need to have political consequences. The much-compensated settlement of border disputes in 2004. Policy in practice applied to a number of relatively small points along the border, over which conflicts had broken out in the and 1970s. No mention was made of the immense 1.5 million square kilometer head of the land of the outer manchuria which could be detached from the Chinese Empire by current diplomats in 1858 to 60, and for which Mao Zedong had once threatened to create the bill. The story of the Sanization is still said to be called taught in Chinese peace, and it seems not as possible that some future Chinese government might be it in support of the desperate come up the they from. Finally, there's a broad question of human relations. Back in the 1950s, the interaction between the Soviet and Chinese leaderships went from really bad to work. But the dealings which took place with the grassroots between Soviet aid personnel in the form of scientists and engineers and their Chinese-Chinese seems Chinese, to have been characterized by considerable loss. Since the fall of the Soviet Union, the picture has been the precise opposite. The leaders of the two countries hug each other, but ordinary people appear to have little contact of any kind. Russians no longer think of China as a backward neighboring country requiring their assistance, while the Chinese no longer look on Russia. As an advanced country to be respected and learned from, the leaders on both sides are conscious that their partnership is warm on the outside but cold within. And starting in 2006, they've made quite a strenuous effort to thaw out the inside of this political baked Alaska, staging a long series of lavish years of China and Russia, and years of Russia and China, intended to rekindle popular goodwill and interest in the other side's culture. Whether these exercises will have any success in deepening the relationship. Only time
2: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Philip Snow, for being so kind out to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books and History, a podcast channel and New Books Network. Thank you, Mr. Snow, very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.